Jesus didn't want anyone to know. When he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, his mother came to him. Perhaps she had some responsibility for the wedding. Perhaps friends of the family. And she said to her son, who was attending the wedding, they've run out of wine. And he said to her, dear woman, why do you involve me? My hour, my time, has not yet come. But mothers are persuasive, and Jesus turned the water into wine. A little while later, two men who were blind were restored. Their sight was restored by Jesus, and he said to them, see that you don't tell anyone about this. And of course, they went out and told everyone about this. We read in Mark chapter 1 that a leper came to Jesus and he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, touched the leper and said, I'm willing, be clean. And then Jesus said to him, see that you keep this quiet. But news about him spread everywhere. Now, why all the secrecy? Why conduct his ministry in a clandestine way so that the world doesn't know what's going on? Well, in Mark chapter 1, we have part of the answer. When the news about him spread everywhere across the region of the Galilee, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. So this concealment of his identity allowed him the freedom of movement to continue his ministry before his huge popularity caused the, the crush of the crowd to limit him. And yet the Bible tells us when we read about the triumphal entry that he who was so private now decided to go public. And Matthew chapter 21 tells the story, just as Luke 19 does. In fact, all four gospel writers give a disproportionate amount of time to the last week of the life of Christ we call the Passion Week. And the significance of that is simply this, that there is a far better understanding of who he is and why he came revealed to us in that last week that starts with Palm Sunday. So what an entrance. I mean, you couldn't make it any more visible than he did. And the first thing I sense as I look at the scriptures is that it appears to be intentionally planned, this whole coming of Christ into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, as they approached Jerusalem, They came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side of the mountain. And Jesus sent two of his disciples into that little village. And he said, I want you to go ahead and you're going to find a donkey there tied with her colt. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you tell them this. The Lord needs them. Now that might have been code language. Because that would not be enough to satisfy any owner if some person just came up and took their donkeys. 
unless they knew something about Christ or they were caught up with the excitement of the moment. The Lord needs them. Why? Well, it says in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. And then he quotes Zechariah chapter 9. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples did exactly what he instructed them to do. Why did he need these animals? Well, simply because he was fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. He knew it was time. He knew exactly what he had to do. This prophecy was on his mind, and he who knew the Father's will in sending him knew that these ancient prophecies would commend him to the world. And so he said, I want you two guys to go and get the donkey. I think he arranged it probably with a friend. And just to make sure the right guys are taking your animals, here's the code word. The Lord needs them. He needs them to fulfill an ancient prophecy. He who shunned public acclaim now deliberately designs this big day. He planned his own parade. So unlike Jesus. But it was time. Something else I noticed as the disciples got the animals, they put their cloaks on the donkey and the colt, and Jesus ended up riding the colt, riding the colt, the mother was tethered to them. And they put the cloaks on this colt. According to Mark chapter 11, the colt had never been ridden. Now, if you know anything about farm animals and donkeys, you don't do that without breaking an animal in. So how did he pull this off? Well, you have to remember, Psalm 8 reminds us that everything has been placed under his feet. Even the wild animals are under his control. And so Jesus might have said, donkey, this is your hour. God was not against using donkeys to rebuke a prophet like Balaam or to have Solomon ride into the city or to fulfill the great prophecy. We can say that the donkey was a noble animal in which kings rode in David's time, and I think that's part of it. But both in the Matthew text and the Zechariah text, it talks about him coming in a lowly, lowly, humble, gentle manner. It's interesting when you read Matthew 21, there are two words that aren't quoted from the Zechariah text. He comes victorious, righteous and victorious, because this was not the day for victory. A transient triumph, A temporary victory, to be sure. But the applause would soon fade. Now notice in verse 8, this is Matthew 21, verse 8, that there was a very large crowd that spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And any child in Sunday school knows that it was the palm frond that comes to us from about 150 years before Jesus, it became the symbol of freedom when the Maccabean revolt took place against the Greeks and in winning their freedom, 
these palm fronds were minted on their coins to remind them that they were free. It was a sense of royalty. They knew exactly what they were doing when they were cutting the branches and laying them on the road because in the portion of Scripture in Luke, just prior to the triumphal entry, the crowd was looking for Jesus to set up the kingdom now. And everyone thought, this is the day. The large crowd also gathered the night before. There was a banquet in Jesus' honor in Bethany, east side of the Mount of Olives. And you can read about it in John chapter 12. It says that a large crowd gathered to see Lazarus, the dead guy who was alive. They wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see the dead guy. And then it says a large crowd had also gathered because of the Passover, a time when the city was jammed. According to William Barclay, maybe two and a half million people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says three million people. Either way, a small city crowded with a lot of people. And the people got involved in all that was taking place. The result was extraordinary praise. This created everyone joining together. Not everyone, but it seemed like everyone. Verse 9, the crowds. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed behind him. Those that were lining the hillside as that descent goes down first from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. The place was filled with people. If you go there today, it's filled with tombs. In that day, it was filled with people shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which, by the way, was a pilgrim's psalm taken from our book of Psalms, Psalm 118. This was a song that the pilgrims would sing over Passover. And if I had a better voice and more courage, I would sing it to you. I don't know what it is, but we have a song, Blessed is the name of the Lord, Blessed is the name of the Lord. Something like that. They were shouting, they were singing, Hosanna. Which means what? Save now. Save now. And it was not only a wish and a prayer, but it, it, it was a praise. He has come to save now. There was a delightful delirium in the whole place. I want to highlight Luke 19, verse 37. Pastor Doug read this a moment ago, but it says when they came near uh, the road that goes down the Mount of Olives, so the banquet took place in Bethany, up the road a little bit ascending the hill was Bethphage and that's where they found the donkey and the colt. Now riding on that they top the hill and begin to go down into the valley and when they do that the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices. What a ruckus. I don't mean to say that this should happen every time but some of our worship services should be loud in praise in rejoicing, an occasional amen. <laughs> I don't like it when a preacher says amen. Amen, that means the crowd's not with you and you've got to get them riled up, amen, amen. 
Amen, amen. I like it when it's spontaneous. Amen. <laughs> but I mean, we need to get excited. And that doesn't mean that every worship service is like that because you've also got the, the quiet, meditative, contemplative reverence. But there's a reverence of joy and there's a reverence of silence. And why do we have to be one and not the other? It was a loud, loud thing. He entered Jerusalem in such a way as to attract the attention of everyone. You had to know what was happening. Couldn't miss it. And now he who had the approval of the Father, because in Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured on another mountain, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He who had the approval of the Father now has the commendation of the crowd, the consent of the crowd. This is our Messiah. And that's why I made it so public. It was time. It was time. But I want to focus, especially on the verse 10 and 11 in Matthew 21, because in verse 10, you've got the city asking a question. The curious question. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Hardly a conscious soul, not touched with the appearance of Christ, and people asking the question, who is this? They stirred an uproar. There's pandemonium in little Jerusalem. And people were anxious to know the answer to that question. I think some people were stirred with curiosity. They wanted information. They were inquisitive. Who is this? Who is this? Coming in, causing such commotion. They were troubled, perhaps, because they didn't know the answers. There was the, the chaos of the uncertainty. And so a lot of people just wanted information. Who is this guy? But then the city was also stirred with contempt. And their question was, who does this guy think he is? Who is this guy who seems to fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. You have to remember that there was tremendous tension in town for several reasons. The zealots, who were politically motivated, wanted to overthrow the Romans. They were willing to use force, and one of them, by the name of Bar-Abba, we call Barabbas, was already arrested. Pilate had ordered more soldiers from Caesarea, 45 miles away, to come and entrench the city of Jerusalem with the presence of soldiers. And in fact, as you came into the city, there was this very high um, fort named after Mark Anthony with 600 soldiers on the balcony overlooking the temple and overlooking the heart of the city just to keep peace. Tension. Zealots and Roman soldiers. There was tension because of the Jewish leaders who said, who does he think he is? Less of a question, more of an indictment. These are the same Jewish leaders who just a couple nights before said to people in the temple, if you find him, bring us word 
because we want to arrest him. And at the banquet there in Bethany, the night before Jesus comes into the city with triumph and cheers, the chief priests saw that many people were going over to Jesus. The chief priests saw not only the popularity of Jesus, but also the popularity of Lazarus who had been raised from, raised from the dead, and they basically said, we need to kill them both if we're going to nip this thing in the bud and stop this movement of following Christ. Oh, there was great tension in the city. But some were stirred by hopefulness. Who is he? Could this be the one? Could this be our Messiah? They were enthused and encouraged. Many godly people had this messianic expectation, this longing that had now grown to a fever pitch, and everything Jesus did seemed to confirm, yes, indeed, this is the Son of God. Why did they sing so loudly? Luke 19 says, because of the miracles. You say, what miracles? The raising of Lazarus from the dead? And the two blind men who were healed in Jericho as Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, I'm convinced they were in the crowd. Look at that guy over there. He was dead last week. Looks pretty good. And those two guys who were jumping and singing and rejoicing could not see just a little while back in Jericho. They were praising God for the miracles he had done. The people saw it, and they were excited. It galvanized their faith. They were ready to make him king. Who is this guy? Time Magazine did an article a few years back called, Who is Jesus? And I bought it and read it. National Geographic has done something very similar, and their pattern is the same. They take everyone's opinion and end the article by saying, we don't know. Or take your best guess. Some say he's a myth and never existed, but most intelligent researchers would never come up with that. There's too much evidence to show that a man named Jesus lived in the first century in the Galilee and was crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem. So then they say, well, maybe he was just a misguided revolutionary. Couldn't pull off what he planned to do. A political coup overthrowing the Romans. Or a prophet. A martyr who died for the cause. But some say, the Bible's true. And Jesus is the Messiah. People are still asking that question today. And now's a great time. This week, we call Holy Week, Passion Week. It's a great time to talk to people about this very thing. Hey, do you know what Palm Sunday means? What does Palm Sunday mean to you? What does Holy Week mean to you? What does Good Friday mean to you? And let them talk. And some of them will ask the question, who's Jesus? And I hope you can tell them he's the one who was sent by the Father to die for your sins and mine on the cross. And he accomplished his purpose. And everyone who puts their faith and trust in him has sins forgiven. So here's the question of the crowd. But I want you to notice in verse 11, or the question of the city, 
I want you to notice in verse 11, the crowds answer. So the city is asking, everyone in the whole city, who is this? And the crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, according to Luke 19, verse 37, this is a crowd of disciples. And they were confident in their answer. And theologically astute in their response. Now, if you go back to what the crowd was shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David means God's Messiah. It's a technical term. It's a theological term. It's the official term for Messiah, the son of David. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel and throughout the prophecies and into the New Testament, the seed of Jesse, the son of David, has come, Romans 1 says, and he is God's Messiah. Secondly, the crowd said, he is Jesus. And that name was given to him by the angel when he was born. To both of his parents, call him Jesus, for he shall save. It's the Old Testament, Joshua, the Lord is salvation. Jesus means Savior. Given that name at his birth, lived up to the name throughout his life, he comes to save. Right on. And thirdly, he is a prophet. He's the prophet from Nazareth in the Galilee. According to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, in various ways and in various times, God spoke to his people through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us through his son. And so Jesus is the one who comes to tell as God's spokesman the truth. The truth about God. You will find the truth about God nowhere else except in the holy scriptures that give to us the mind of God and the words of Christ. Can't find him anywhere else. No other authority. Not ecclesiastical. Not governmental. Not populous. It's revelation from God or we have nothing. And Jesus is God's spokesman. Or to put it another way, the son of David means he's Messiah, king, or ruler. That's what it said in Zechariah, right? The king is coming, riding on a colt. Son of David, Messiah, means king or ruler. Jesus is the mediator. He's the go-between between the holy God and the Father, just like a priest was in the Old Testament. He's the mediator or the priest. And he is the messenger and the spokesman and the prophet. Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And the crowd knew it. This is who he is. And they were confident of it. I wonder if you're confident that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. So confident that you're willing to cast your life upon him. It's interesting that on Sunday, the day of applause, it didn't last too long. 
The week that begins with shouts of praise ends with cries of death, and it's not necessarily the same people, but there would have been some people who had been disillusioned because the kingdom didn't come now. They just wanted to get rid of the Romans. There's a lot of people living today who are more political than spiritual. They're more into this world than the next. And they'd be all for Jesus if he could make this world a place of harmony and peace now. (laughs) But Jesus has a kingdom that comes from another world. There's a sense in which his kingdom is here in the hearts of his believing people, but his kingdom is coming. But now he comes for a different purpose, and they didn't understand that. So I'm sure some of the people who said Hosanna on Sunday were yelling crucify him on Friday because he's a fraud. Messiah can't be killed by the Romans. But what a reversal. It's striking, isn't it? How fickle a crowd can be. Isn't it amazing how you and I can believe one day and be filled with doubts the next day? We need to be confident in our soul of souls that this is God's word. We're banking everything on it. And if this word is wrong, then I'm a goner. Because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Nothing else. And so Jesus comes and stirs up the town and says, yes, I am the Messiah. But the Messiah has something very important to do. Before he does his kingly work, he's got to do his priestly work. He's done his prophetic work. And now as a priest, he offers up a sacrifice for our sins. What's the sacrifice, Jesus? Me. And he dies on Good Friday, the Son of God, the Son of David, our Savior and our Lord. When I first preached at South in March of 1995, as the senior pastor, Rhonda Frank sang and Melanie Seal played the piano. I didn't know that Melanie Seal had just become Seal. And I didn't know the story behind Rhonda's song. But she cried. She sang through her tears because grace had touched her soul. And I'll never forget that first Sunday where I praised God that I could be in the midst of real believers. Because you can be a phony believer who says all the right things and you might even believe the right things, but you've never committed yourself to Christ. You're not confident and you don't see who he really is. And that's why this Passion Week was designed and emphasized in every gospel so that you might know who he is and you, you might know why he's come. So that you could turn from your sin and trust him. So many people left him when he was crucified. The disciples all forsake him. 
they denied him. Think of it, Hosanna. I don't even know who you are. We sing a, a song during Christmas, and really it shouldn't be regulated to Christmas because only the first verse is Christmas. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? It's a biography of Christ that goes chronologically, and well, it should start uh, with his coming to the earth. But listen to this. Who is he in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? Who is he the people bless for his words of gentleness? Who is he the people cheer but creates in others fear? Could this be our coming king? Loud hosannas to him ring. Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules all through the world alone? Answer, tis the Lord, the King of glory. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. At his feet we humbly fall and we crown him, we crown him, Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, to those who are asking the question in their heart of hearts this morning, who is Jesus? I want to know him. I pray that you will touch them. Open their eyes that they might understand and see the glorious beauty of our Savior who is prophet, priest, and king. And may they go beyond seeing to believing, turning from all other things that they trust, all other things that they worship, and crown Jesus King and Lord of all. Lord, I pray at this very moment that faith will spring forth in their heart so that nothing can stop them from saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, and I need to be saved. Save me now. And then, Lord, from each one of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ, may we be reminded that the world is asking the question and we have the answer. And we need to plainly, lovingly, clearly tell them, Jesus, God's Son and Messiah, Savior who dies for all, the prophet who speaks God's word to us, is King. And we must humbly fall at his feet. Oh, Lord, do business in our hearts this morning, we pray. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, let me ask you to do business with God in prayer. Just for a few silent moments, will you? Heavenly Father, we look back on that time period and we celebrate today your coming into Jerusalem and what we call Palm Sunday. Even as we look forward to Friday when we remember how 
you were that sacrifice for our sins. And then a week from today when we will celebrate your resurrection. And Lord, we're looking beyond that. Lord, we look for you to come again as you have promised. King, to finally rule and reign. Restore all things, make them right, make them as they were in the first place before our sin entered into the world. Lord, I pray that if there is someone here today who has never crowned you the king of their lives, still holding on to that for themselves, I pray today would be the day that they submit, they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Lord, for those of us who claim to be followers of Christ, May we do that in every way, like Rhonda was saying this morning, every second of every day, every minute, to be consciously walking as followers of our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.